0: I want to direct your attention to a portion of God's Word taken from the book of Titus and chapter 2, reading from verses 11 to verse 15. Titus chapter 2, verse 11, on to verse 15. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Regardless of where we stand in terms of personal commitment to Jesus. It is fair to say that of all the great men and women who have walked the face of the earth, none has risen to the statue of Jesus Christ. Historians have pointed out that there were great men, great generals, like Alexander the Great, men like Napoleon, whose names are etched in the annuals of history. But their accomplishments cannot be compared to that of our Lord Jesus Christ and his career, which lasted a mere three years. But what our Lord did for three years has never been equaled by lives and services over 40 or 60 years. And what I want to deal with tonight is this matter of the offering of Christ that is beyond comparison in human history and has done more for the world than any single act in history. Before we take up the subject of the offering of our Lord, we want to paint the background for this book of Titus. It's an interesting book. and Titus himself is an interesting man. First of all, he bears the name of a Roman emperor, one who incidentally destroyed Jerusalem in 70 A.D., We don't know a lot about the church to which he writes in terms of its formation, the church in Crete. There are those who believe that the church may have begun by the witnessing of those who were in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost and were converted, What we do know is that the Apostle Paul visited Crete with Titus. He was a Gentile convert, a fruit of Paul's labor, and you will notice how Paul (coughs) describes him. Paul refers to him as one who is dear, in verse 4, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. The indication there is that he was a fruit of Paul's ministry. We see him, though we do not have information of him in the book of Acts, we see him as one to whom Paul entrusts great responsibilities. He, for instance, is the one that Paul used to collect money for the saints in Jerusalem. He could be trusted with money. And the apostle Paul appears to have visited Crete, this little island of the coast of Greece with Titus, somewhere after AD 63. And Paul left him on this island and continued his journey. And he writes him this epistle, an epistle in which he gives him instructions primarily regarding structuring and organizing the church in Crete. And so you will find that in chapter 1, in verses 5 and following at least verse 9, he gives him instruction about the qualifications of elders whom he ought to appoint in the church. It seems there was a fair degree of disorganization in the work there in Crete. And so he tells them about the character of the men who should serve as elders. And then he continues in verses 10 to 16 to talk about false teachers and how Timothy was to deal with them. One great preacher from Liverpool in England reminds us of a French translation which translates the task of the elders regarding false teachers. Where it says in verse 11, there are those who are idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouth must be stopped. And this French translation says, nail their beaks shut. The task of the elders, given at least one of them, was to nail the beaks of these false teachers shut. And so he talks then about false teachers and their character. But in chapter 2, he addresses members of the congregation there in Crete. It seems that not only was the church in Crete disorganized, but people were living quite licentious lives. It appears that they were quite careless in their behavior. Men were lax. Older women were gossips and drunks. Younger women were idle and flirtatious, and on and on it went. And so he gives, in the first ten verses, instructions about how they are to conduct themselves. So he talks to older men in verse 2, to younger women, and to older women in verse 3, and to younger women in verse 4, and he goes on giving instructions to various segments of the church in Crete. He says, this is how you ought to live. This is how you ought to conduct yourself in the household of faith, in the house of God. He gives instructions in verse 9 regarding servants and how they serve their masters. Now in verse 11... He begins to provide the rationale and the basis for the instructions given in verses 1 to 10. He's going to say, now this is the reason that you ought to behave in the way I have instructed you. The way in which I have told you. He says, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present age. That there then he gives the basis for godly conduct. It is because he says the grace of God which appeared to all men has taught us that we should live godly lives. The grace of God which appeared of course refers in the first place to the grace of God in Jesus Christ. But ultimately he's speaking about the grace of God that appeared in the gospel. And he says that this gospel which has come has not merely saved us, but it has taught us. It has an educated function. It educates us. And he says, this is what it tells us negatively. It says, the grace of God has taught us first to deny ungodliness. To deny ungodliness means... To refuse to consent to something. When one denies ungodliness, one does, not, one does not claim that ungodliness does not exist. But rather, one denies it in the sense that one refuses to comply. One refuses to live in ungodliness. One refuses to consent to it. So this is what, they, what Grace teaches us negatively to refuse to consent to ungodliness, that lack of reverence for God. And, it says, grace has taught them to deny ungodliness and worldly lust. That is, the passions of the flesh. They are not to live in disobedience, satisfying sinful desires of the flesh. That's the negative side. But grace, positively, has taught them not only to deny ungodliness and worldly lust, but to be looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that I know that, the, that there is much discussion about verse 13, um, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And whether it refers to Jesus Christ as our great God, And Savior, or it refers to our great God as one person and Jesus Christ our Savior as another. What I would suggest to you at the Granville Sharp Rule where one article governs both nouns suggesting that we're dealing with Jesus Christ who has been called here our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So he introduces him. He says, grace teaches us to deny ungodly living. Grace teaches us that we're to be looking for the appearing, the coming of the Lord Jesus, who is our great God and Savior. And then he describes him. He describes the Lord Jesus in verse 14 with this statement, who gave himself for us. And this, my friend, is a statement of the offering of the Lord Jesus. And I want to reflect upon this in preparation for the Lord's table. May I suggest first then that Christ gave himself as a sacrificial offering. This is what the Apostle Paul means when he tells them to be looking for this great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. He means in the first place that Christ gave himself as a sacrificial offering. The writer emphasizes that the cross of our Lord was a voluntary act of self-giving. It is not merely that the Lord God, the Father, gave the Lord Jesus Christ, which is true, but that our Savior himself gave his life, gave himself as an offering, as a sacrifice. This then, this language of Christ giving himself, refers to him giving himself as a sacrificial offering. And Paul understands the cross of Christ as his sacrificial offering. He will say something similar in Galatians 1, to 3-4. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God, of our God and Father, in Galatians 1 through and 4. He gave himself, but it's shorthand, for he gave himself as a sacrificial offering. He gave himself, he says, according to the will of God. The Christ act of giving himself as a sacrifice to the Father was by the will of God. Or Paul in Galatians 2.20, speaking about Christ's giving of himself, he says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of this is language about Christ giving himself as a sacrificial offering. And the text that should be one of the favorite verses of husbands found in Ephesians 5.25, verse 27. I said it should be, notice the language. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church. I know that husband's favorite verse is the one that preceded this. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. That he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. See, Paul uses this language of Christ giving himself. Husbands, love your wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself. He gave himself as a sacrificial offering. Hugh Martin, I refer to him because he wrote a marvelous book on atonement and the covenant in the 1800s. And he points out that we ought not to think of Christ's death purely in terms of suffering, Now Martin was not denying that the cross was essentially penal, that is punitive or punishment, because it was. But the fundamental idea that we must bear in mind of the cross was that the cross was an offering, a sacrifice, an offering to God. And this takes us back then into the cultus, the religious activity of the Old Testament. See, there were different types of offerings. Offerings were gifts that were given to God by his people. And there were different gifts. There were offerings of grain and drink offering and freewill offerings. These were acts of worship, expressions of devotion And dedication. And dependence upon God. But then there were. A special category of offerings that. Were not the idea of men. But were demanded by God. These were what we call the blood sacrifices. And among the blood sacrifices. Were or was this one. Of the sin offering or the guilt offering. The. Blood offering or the guilt offering, the sin offering, was God's provision to deal with human sin. And again, I mentioned to deal with sins of negligence, inadvertence, not deliberate or high-handed sin. You see, the Old Testament reveals that sin incurred guilt or liability. And for sin to be removed and the relationship with God to be restored, there had to be a gift. So the notion was one should not come to God without something in his hand. He must come to God with a gift. You see, this notion of an offering or a gift to God brings to mind the concept of reparation. The sacrificial offering for sin in the Old Testament was rooted in the idea of reparation. What do we mean by reparation? Reparation means the act of making amends for a wrong that one has done. So let me give you an example of reparation. Somebody comes over to your home, see this nice vase that you had you traveled to israel or somewhere there in the middle east and you found this vase it's beautiful it's wonderful you have it on your mantelpiece and they go and take it up they're turning over in your hand and of course you begin to tremble in your boots because you know what's going to happen and lo and behold they drop it and i mean pieces fly everywhere this is an egg that cannot be unscrambled It cannot be put together. This is a Humpty Dumpty cannot be put together again. They have destroyed the vase that you have bought and taken great care of. Now, what should they do? Should they say, Oops, sorry, didn't mean to do so. Is that enough? Should they start crying? Would that be enough? You see, reparation is not essentially merely an apology. It is making amends, doing something that will make it better, that it will somehow fix the problem, making amends. The most logical way of reparation or making reparation is to find a similar vow to purchase it, and to replace it. Because the notion there is that guilt, offense, requires that the one who has caused the offense make amends, makes reparation. And that is exactly what the Old Testament system for sacrifices for sin were all about. That the one who has Injured the honor of God. The one who was offended God. Must make an attempt at reparation. Doing something to alleviate. To make up for what he or she has done. And that is exactly what the Old Testament system of sacrifice was all about. The problem of course was that that system was not sufficient. Offering an animal Was not enough. And so the writer says. True. Reparation has been made. He has come the Lord. To make amends. This one. For whom we look. Gave himself. And he gave himself. Then as a sacrifice. An offering. To make amends. You know that this language of Christ giving himself is essentially giving himself as a sacrificial offering because we are told exactly this. In verse 2 of Ephesians 5, you have a longer statement about the giving of himself. And notice what Paul says to the Ephesians. Walk in love as Christ also has loved us and given himself. Paradidomi, coming from the same root that we have here. In Titus two fourteen, he gave a stronger form. Parted am I? He says, "Walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave Himself." Literally, handed Himself over. So he says, "Walk in love as Christ has loved us, and has given Himself for us." And then comes the elaboration, an offering and a sacrifice to God is indicating that the death of Christ and the sacrifice of Christ was a gift, an offering to God for sin. That our Lord Jesus gave himself voluntarily as an offering. And that is why John was thrilled when he saw Jesus. Because the Spirit of God pointed out to him that indeed the Lamb had now arrived. He could say, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. You see, he recognized that this is the Lamb. This is the sacrificial offering that God had designed to deal with human sin. It is important to note then that when Paul says that the one who is coming and the one for whom we await he gave himself for us. It means he gave himself as a sacrificial offering. This is something that we must insist upon. It, we must insist upon it because it is not always universally accepted. If you go back to the 16th and 17th century, you had the heresy called Socinianism, And you had, of course, Laelus Socinus. And then (coughs) his nephew, Faustus Sassinius. It is Faustus Sassinius who actually developed this theory known as Sassinianism. And what Sassinianism essentially declared is simply that our Lord Jesus Christ was not God in flesh. He was a mere man who lived in accordance with the will of God. And his death on the cross must not be seen as a sacrifice or an offering to God, but must be seen as essentially an example. An example. He rejected the idea that the self giving of Christ was as a sacrificial offering. And he was not alone. Even before him in the fourth century, Arius, in the church in Alexandria, the church of which Athanasius was bishop declared of Christ that there was once when he was not. He didn't believe that our Lord Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Didn't believe that our Lord Jesus Christ died as a sacrifice and an offering. That his death was a sacrificial offering. Well, why did Christ die? If you ask Arius, he would have said that Christ died to exert influence upon God. He was obedient to the Father, did the things that the Father wanted, and so by dying, he influenced the Father to forgive us of our sins. In more recent times, there are those who argue for a non-violent approach to the atonement. There are those who think of Christ's death as a, died as a martyr. One writer, Joel Green, sees Christ's death as fulfilling God's purpose and arguing that Christ died as a resistant to earthly empire. But when you read the text of the scriptures, what you're confronted with is with the death of Christ as an offering to God, as a sacrifice to God. A sacrifice for sin that fulfills the Old Testament sin offerings. But this statement that Jesus gave himself, not only speaks then of his death as a sacrificial offering, it also speaks of his death as a substitutionary offering. Notice what Paul says of our Lord in verse 14, who gave himself for us. For us. Richard Swinburne is a professor at Oxford. He wrote a book on atonement. And he says that each human being owes atonement to God for his own sin. Each human being has the responsibility of making amends to God for his sin. He says Jesus Christ, being God, owed nothing to God, the Father he means, but provided his life and death as something... That we can offer to God as our reparation. When you listen to that, you're not listening carefully. It might sound just about right. He says that our Lord Jesus Christ did not owe the Father anything. But he offered his life and death. Or he gave his life and death as something that we can offer to God. As our reparation, as our payment. The problem is that it is not we who offer Christ to the Father. It is Christ who offered himself for us. We come with empty hands. We have nothing to give to God. But Christ gave himself for us. The the passage makes it clear. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. Who gave himself for us. We don't offer Christ to God. Christ offered himself to God the Father for us. And this is a language of substitution. You see, Christ's death is not only a sacrificial offering, it is a substitutionary offering. It is an offering for us. This is a point that is emphasized throughout the scriptures. You merely have to turn back to the great evangelical prophet of the Old Testament, Isaiah, in Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our grief and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteem him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. You have to emphasize what the writer has before us. Surely he has borne our grief is substitution. He's taken upon himself our guilt and our sin and paid the penalty for them. And if that is not clear enough, that this is a language of substitution, then you have to go down to verse 11 in chapter 53 of Isaiah. Speaking of the Father, he shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. And by his knowledge, my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. But when Christ went to the cross, he had no sins for which he ought to pay. He was bearing our iniquities, he was bearing our missteps, he was carrying our sin and our shame, he was paying with his blood for our misdeeds against the will of God the Lord Jesus makes it very clear when he gave this programmatic statement about his entrance into the world the son of man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many is a substitute you can't understand the death of Christ unless you understand that he was taking our place Bearing our sins. Offering himself to God instead of us. The apostle Paul himself emphasizes this. In Romans 5, in fact verse 6, but in verses 7 and 8 he says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In Romans 15 verse 3, For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. We can't escape it. The writer says Christ died for us. And he interchanges that with Christ died for our sins. It means... He died in our room, and in our stead, we should have died. We should have been punished for our sins, but he died for us. Amen. Paul says, "Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us." Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return? When he suffered, did he not threaten? but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you are healed, 1 Peter 2, 23-24. All of these statements, for us, for our sins, point to the fact that Christ, self-giving, Christ gave himself not only as a sacrificial offering, but a sacrificial offering and a substitutionary offering. But I want to make one more point regarding this text. That if we understand Christ's giving of himself in verse 14. As a sacrificial offering and as a substitutionary offering. We must recognize that he gave himself as a sufficient offering. He says who gave himself for us. That he might redeem us from every lawless deed. And purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. But there was a purpose in Christ's giving of himself. And he lists two purposes that Christ, for which Christ gave himself. The first, he says, is that Christ gave himself to redeem us from every lawless deed. The language of redemption, to redeem, is the one of deliverance. It is to deliver us from lawless deeds. We lived in opposition to the will of God. We turned aside from the way of God. We lived in opposition to the demands of God. But Christ has died and gave himself to deliver us from the slavery to sin in which we found ourselves entangled and could not help ourselves, could not deliver ourselves. See, Christ delivered us from lawless deeds. He delivered us from the penalty of our lawless deeds. He delivered us from the power of our lawless deeds and will deliver us from the very presence of lawless deeds when he comes. But what he's making the point is that Christ gave himself as an offering but as a sufficient offering not only as a sacrificial offering and a substitutional offering but a sufficient offering to deliver us. His intent in dying was to do something for us to deliver us from the power of sin. He says something similar in Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5. When the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. So he died to deliver us from lawless deeds, that is our sins, and deliver us from the penalty of the law, the redemption was not only his purpose, but the result. See, he did not merely die to redeem us. He, he did redeem us with his sufficient sacrifice. And this is what Peter says. Knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct, received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. You see, his was a sufficient sacrifice. Because it delivered us. It ransomed us from the curse of the law. From the power and the tyranny of sin. But secondly, the purpose is not only redemption. We have a second purpose here. He gave himself, secondly, to purify for himself his own special people. To set us apart as his own special people. To cleanse us. His death was sufficient to cleanse us, to sanctify us, to consecrate us as his own special people, zealous for good works. That's the purpose of Christ's death. First of all, to redeem us, to deliver us, to buy us back from lawless deeds, and to purify us as his own special people for good works. You and I must ponder afresh that Christ's death was an offering and a sacrifice to God. That even in a day and age when men will not want to hear that Christ died as an offering to God for our sins. We must know that no other theory of the atonement can help us, ultimately. You see, it's one thing to say that Christ died And his death must be seen as a victory. Gustave Hollande points out and says that this was the classical view of the atonement throughout church history. That God (laughs) tricked Satan. And delivered us from Satan. That's all good and well. It's all very good and well that God somehow tricked Satan and one wonders why God has to go into any kind of trickery in the first place. But let's grant that God tricked Satan and delivered us. Not that I believe it. Please don't go away saying I believe that God tricked Satan. But let's just say that this is what happened. He delivered us from Satan. By whatever means. You still have the problem is of how do we get delivered from God's wrath. Deliverance from Satan is one thing. But what about the sins that we have committed? You see, none of these theories, whether it is the theory of victory or of an example or of a martyr, can save us. We need more than a martyr to save us. We need more than an example to save us. We need a real savior. We need someone who is able to do something about our sins in the sight of God. And what God did is that he provided a lamb. Who offered himself as a sacrifice. He offered up a perfect life. A life lived in conformity to the will of God. And he offered himself once to the Father for us. And that sacrifice has been accepted. And the reason you and I are saved. It is because we have in Jesus a real lamb. A sacrificial lamb. That our sins have been removed in Christ. Because Jesus Paid it all, all to him I owe. It means that you and I must ponder that the cross was the very offering that God desired, Christ delivered. The only offering that could save us, Jesus Christ gave. We must realize that this is true praise. This is a reason to praise the Lord. Because not only did he give to the Father an offering and a sacrifice. He gave an offering and a sacrifice for us. For us. Yes. I keep on referring to Hugh Martin. Because I thought he was a brilliant theologian. He points out you know that. The office of Christ. As priest. rests on personal relations. I need to draw a line under that statement. He's saying the work of Christ as priests and by implication, victim, relies on personal relations. What does he mean by personal relation? Well, what Martin was getting at is this. He said that every time you read about the high priest of Israel, it was always in connection with a specific people. You see, the high priest of Israel was a high priest for Israel alone. He was not a high priest for the Canaanites and for every other ites that were there in the Old Testament. He was a high priest for Israel. And the sacrifice that he offered on the Day of Atonement, he offered it for a specific people, God's covenant people. And when you think of Christ as our high priest and sacrifice, You must not think that Christ delivered up himself and made a sacrifice for nameless, faceless, indefinite people. Paul says he gave himself for us. It means that Christ's death is related to his people, people whom he knows who have been given to him in election by the grace of God, of whom he says, I shall lose none of them, but I shall raise them up on the last day. And you and I, as believers, we are among the elect, the people of God for whom Jesus died. Yes. I believe in a personal and definite atonement. Amen. If Jesus Christ died for no one specific, then he died for no one at all. But that is not what we have in Scripture. He gave up his life for us. He died for his church, for his people, for his sheep. And when it uses many, it refers to the many who belong to God, whether they are universal, seen or not. And to understand this, this is the great news. This is the wonderful news of the scriptures who gave himself for us. Are you among the us? Have you come and bowed the knees to Jesus? Have you trusted in him? Because if you are, then you can be delighted this evening that Jesus has paid a price, the full price and the whole price for you. Yes. But you must remember as we close that Christ died for you and for me for a purpose. He died that we must not continue to live in lawlessness. He died, we would think, He died to save me that I will be delivered from hell. And I I, I think that's wonderful to say that. That's true. Christ died to deliver us from the penalty of our sins, from judgment. But he died for more than that. You see, he died that he might deliver us from sin, that we no longer continue to live the way we used to live. He died, secondly, to redirect us, to live for him. He died to make us his own. He gave himself as a sacrifice and an offering so that he might purify for himself his own peculiar and special people. Why did Christ die for you? He died that you would be his own peculiar people, his special people, sanctified, set apart for him. And when you think of this great sacrifice of Christ, that he who is the king of glory bowed the heaven and came down, was abused and crucified and died for our sins, we can do nothing less than to give ourselves to him who loved us and gave himself for us. He has given himself as an offering for us. We must give ourselves as an offering to him. Why? Because he died that we might be his own special people. A people who are zealous for good works. You and I as Christians must be busy. We shouldn't be idle in the church. We must find new things to do among the people of God for the glory of God. Because we were guilty and we were unworthy and he has died and delivered us from our sins. There is nothing too hard that we must not give to him and do for him. You and I should be busy. We should be red hot in zeal. We should be looking for new opportunities to advance the name of Christ. We should never complain about how busy or how tired we are. If you are tired, take a rest and keep on going after that. You see, you ought to be busy, red hot. Why? Because Christ has loved you and saved you by his blood. So we come to the Lord's table this evening. We must come knowing that the death of Jesus Christ places us in a particular place where we are his special people, designed by him to bring him glory. May God so work in all our hearts that we are people zealous for good works, for his glory, for Jesus' sake.
1: Please stand as we sing, Here is Love. Loving kindness as the flood, when the Prince of Life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he can never be forgotten. Throughout hem's eternal days On the mount of crucifixion Fountains open deep and wide Through the floodgates of God's mercy Flows a vast and gracious tide Grace and love like mighty rivers Pouring incessant from above, heaven's peace and perfect justice, kiss the guilty world in love. Let us all his love accepting, love him ever all our days. Let us seek his kingdom only, and our lives be to his praise. He alone shall be our glory. Nothing in the world we see. He has cleansed and sanctified us. He himself has set us free. Amen. Please be seated. Let's pray.
0: Our Father, we thank you for the offering of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that there is one sacrifice for sin that has satisfied you. That in Jesus Christ our sins have been atoned for. That full reparation has been made. And we have been delivered once and for all from the curse of the law. And the threat of judgment. We pray that we might be a thankful and grateful people, offering to you our lives consecrated for your service. We recognize that nothing that we offer may repay you. But this evening, Lord, we give you our hearts and our lives again. And we redevote ourselves to you and say, Lord, take us. And make us useful vessels for your kingdom. Grant Lord. That the profundity of what Jesus has done. Might never ever escape our gaze and attention. But that we may keep coming back to the cross. And what it means for Jesus to have died. As an offering. A substitutionary offering. And a sufficient offering for our sins. Bless these words to our hearing. Sanctify them we pray to our hearts. And may they. Control us and work in us and conform us to Christ, we pray for his sake.